This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi folks, Ben here with a quick favor to ask. There are some great advertisers who support the show, and in order for them to continue doing that, I need your help. Please do me a favor and go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. Even if you've taken our show's podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different, so I'd really love for you to take it again. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, dot com slash kick. Thanks for your help, and now enjoy the podcast. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, how safe is your computer? Sure, you do the updates and download antivirus software, but how certain are you that someone, whether it's a criminal, a jealous ex, big data, or law enforcement, isn't accessing or even manipulating your computer? Maybe even using the camera and the microphone to spy on you. How about your phone? Your social media? What about your TV? Your home security system? In the digital age, all that and more is up for grabs for a determined hacker. My guest today knows all about it because he was once the most wanted hacker in the world. Kevin Mitnick is a best-selling author, a top cybersecurity expert, and the world's most famous hacker. Once one of the FBI's most wanted because he hacked into 40 major corporations, Kevin is now a trusted security consultant to Fortune 500 companies and governments worldwide, including his former adversary, the FBI. As the CEO of Mitnick Security Consulting, Kevin and his global ghost team now maintain a 100% successful track record of being able to penetrate the security of any system they're paid to hack into using a combination of technical exploits and social engineering. Also, in his role as Chief Hacking Officer of Know Before, he helps produce acclaimed security awareness training programs to counteract social engineering and to improve security effectiveness. His books include The Art of Intrusion, The Real Story Behind the Exploits of Hackers, Intruders, and Deceivers, and The Art of Deception, Controlling the Human Element of Security, as well as his autobiography, Ghost in the Wires, My Adventures as the World's Most Wanted Hacker. He's written a new book called The Art of Invisibility, The World's Most Famous Hacker Teaches You How to Be Safe in the Age of Big Brother and Big Data. And on today's show, he'll reveal just how vulnerable our cars, our homes, and the technology in the palms of our hands are to a security hack. And he'll share some fairly simple steps you can take to protect yourself. He'll discuss what kinds of information companies like Uber and Facebook are gathering from you, even when you're not using their apps, how your digital photos show a lot more than you might think, and whether your computer, your phone, and even your television might be listening to everything you say, even when they're not on, as well as warnings about using your company Wi-Fi for personal matters, how the wrong combination of Google searches can lead to a visit from the FBI, why those documents you store in the cloud might not have Fourth Amendment protection, and why he says you'd better put a passcode lock on your phone if you're within 100 miles of the U.S. border. 
Plus, Kevin Mitnick says the DNC and Clinton campaign hacks were child's play and that anyone with $200,000 to spend could hack the cell phone of the most powerful man in the world. Coming up with the world's most famous hacker, Kevin Mitnick, in just a moment. Kevin Mitnick is the world's most famous and formerly the U.S. government's most wanted computer hacker. He has hacked into some of the country's most powerful and seemingly impenetrable agencies and companies. And at one point, he was on a three-year run from the FBI. They eventually caught up to him and he served five years. Upon release, he became a best-selling author and leading security consultant, Mitnick's leading penetration testing team is highly respected and sought after for its security services by the world's top corporations and governments. He has a new book called The Art of Invisibility. The world's most famous hacker teaches you how to be safe in the age of big brother and big data. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. It's uh, uh, I'm really happy to be here. When you were on the run for three years, that was before widespread use of the Internet, really, before smartphones, before social media, pre-9-11 even. Yeah, this was 1992 to 1995. You know, so it was a lot different back then. We didn't have, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter uh, back in those days. And everything was dial-up modem. You would dial up to your (laughs) ISP. You you didn't have broadband in the home. And there was no commercial, commercial Internet sites. There was no Yahoo, eBay, Google, that sort of thing. So how much more difficult would it be for you to disappear like that today? Probably be the same. Oh, really? The whole idea is to get identity and to to get uh, identity documents issued by a government agency. And everything in the United States starts with a birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to get a birth certificate, what I did is, you know, it sounds morbid, but I, you know, I did what I did back in the day is I did research and found, uh, uh, people that died at a young age when they were infants, you know, two years or three years of age that no, had no, any, no other identity documents uh, issued to them and that were, they were born in a different state than they passed away in. And I basically just applied for their birth certificate and became them. Okay. Now, one of the frustrations I experienced with this book is every chapter covers a different vulnerability and suggests fixes but they usually end with some phrase like, now that you've done A, B, and C, you're secure, right? Wrong. There's this whole other threat. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so it kind, of, kind of like, you're good, you're good to go. And then, oh, by the way, you didn't think about this. Well, yeah. you know, don't forget the book, Art of Invisibility, covers everything You know, from your TV could be listening to the conversation in your room to some hacker is going to break into your refrigerator you know, and uh, you know, what most people don't know is how easy it is for a government agency, like a law enforcement agency or intelligence agency, to simply spy on you. And not only can government agencies do it, well, so can identity thieves and hackers. So what inspired me to do the book was actually the revelations of Edward Snowden in 2013 when he revealed how the U.S. government was monitoring everything. You know, we kind of knew in the back of our mind, you know, the government, you know, would be monitoring, you know, a lot of stuff, but when Snowden came out with his revelations, it was, oh my God, you know, you have no privacy, get over it. That's a quote by Scott McNeely, by the way. 
And anyway, so what inspired me to write the book was really learning about this. And I wanted to give the, you know, the public the tools to really protect their privacy. Like, for example, there's a school district that gave free MacBooks to their students. And MacBook Pros are really expensive. They're like $3,000 laptops. But what they didn't tell the students or the teachers that they actually had spyware. So what happened is the school district was actually spying on students in their bedrooms by turning on their webcam. And how this came to light is one student was called to the principal's office for allegedly popping pills. And when you know it came down to the facts of the case, it was learned that this uh, the school district was spying on this kid in his bedroom and was watching him you know, pop pills, but it wasn't really pills. He was actually eating Mike and Ike's candy. <laughs> so anyway, the school got caught spying on their students, which was, you know, students, you know, in bedrooms get dressed and undressed. They're minors. Yeah. You know, it's a serious, serious privacy violation. Of course, they got they got sued and they probably no longer do this, hopefully. But people don't know this. People don't realize at work they're being monitored. Um uh, you know, that the school could, you know, if you're, you're, your kids at school, that the kids could be, be monitored, that when you make a phone call, a text message or send an email, it's trivial these days for uh, a hacker or an identity thief to intercept your communications. Yeah. And, you know, there are a number of things in here that I guess I probably thought were urban myths and turns out they're not. For instance, the government has the ability to monitor your Google searches. And there have been cases where people were raided by the FBI for just uh, having an interest exactly. in a rice cooker or something like that. Yeah, the Boston bomber case. Yeah. So what happened is uh, after that case, you know, they used the pressure cookers, you know, and we know the story. And uh, I can't pronounce the two brothers' names Sorry, because they're yet. unusual yeah. names. But um we all know that they use these backpacks uh, full of pressure cookers to uh, to kill people at the Boston Marathon in 2013, I believe. And some uh, family was using Google to search for uh, uh, backpacks and a pressure cooker, you know. Um, and it turned out it was a very innocent search. It was like husband was looking for a backpack, the wife was looking for a new cooker, and you had these black vans pull in front of the house and. Uh, these nondescript government agents knocking on the door asking to, you know, have a, have a discussion, right? And it was all because of that Google search. So that's pretty scary. It, it kind of reminds me of 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the basics before we get into things like encryption and whatnot. Um, passwords. What makes a good secure password? One that you don't pick. And <laughs> what do I mean by that? is I really encourage your listeners to use a password manager. Mm -hmm. A password manager manages your passwords. You don't actually create the password. It automatically generates a password for each website you use. And when you go in, when you go to the website to log in, it will automatically fill in the password for you. So it's very easy. And you have to know one password to unlock your password manager. That you should have a passphrase or some sentence. You okay. know, like Mary had a little lamb or your favorite lyric from a song that you like, a favorite quotation in a book, you know, something that's going to be, you know, at least 25, you know, characters long. Wow. And you keep that very secret because obviously if somebody gets that and gets access to your computer, they could get access to all your passwords. Uh, and I, and, and that's, you know, highly recommended. There's hosted versions. I recommend uh, one password as long as you use it in offline mode and other managers like KeePass or password safe, which are free. Uh, for people to download. So that's definitely 
one of my number one recommendations because people are very lazy and yeah. <laughs> they're not creative when it comes to choosing their passwords or their password reset questions. So people okay. also have to think, well, are they putting real, you know, what's your mother's maiden name as your password <laughs> reset question? Well, I could look up your mother's maiden name in probably about one minute on the internet. Like, were you born in California, Ben? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Well, if you're born in California, for example, there's a site where you could look up anyone's mother's maiden name because birth records are public record. You know, people you know, really need to be aware of this. So if I were to use my mother's maiden name, my childhood dog, my street, my birthday, that's not a good password? No, that's not a good password reset question. Okay. The password should always be set by the password manager. But don't forget what people also do is they create a way to recover a lost password to a password reset mm -hmm. question, which is usually a drop right. down. What's your dad's middle name? What's your what's your what's your what what's your favorite song? What's the first concert you went to? What's the first make of your car? All this stuff if somebody really wants to do research on the target that has the, you know, that password reset question, it's really not too hard to figure it out. In fact, Sarah Palin's account was hacked, I believe, a couple of years ago by a college student who were, and I think the question is, where did you meet your husband? And in interviews uh, that were online that Sarah Palin gave, uh, basically, she married her high school sweetheart. So, you know, the kid put in high school. And it worked and was able to reset Sarah Palin's password and, get, and essentially hijack her account. And I was surprised to see that you recommend that people actually physically write down their password somewhere. Well, and stick it in the safe. Okay. Like, uh, like for example, when you set a recovery key using FileVault 2 on a Mac, um, it, it, it displays uh, uh, like a 25-character password to, as a recovery tool, right? So obviously you're not going to memorize it. You shouldn't save it on your computer, you know, because the computer is what you're trying to recover access to. Mm -hmm. So you have to put it somewhere. So, you know, what we recommend in the book is actually writing it down and putting it in the safe. You also say that you should use a tablet computer for all financial transactions, huh? Oh, absolutely. So people spend a hundred bucks a year on antivirus software. You know, nowadays it actually comes bundled with a computer you buy, like if you order one from Dell or HP. Mm -hmm. But if you want to renew it, it's usually about a hundred bucks. So for a couple hundred bucks, you can buy a Chromebook, right? And every time you access your financial sites, your your credit card sites, your bank account sites, um, your your portfolio at Schwab or whatever, you only use the Chromebook for that, right? And you don't store your passwords in your password manager for your bank accounts. You actually you know, have those, in a, you know, using maybe a separate password manager that you could use through the Chromebook. And that way, even if your main computer gets compromised, which is really not that uh, rare these days, they're still not going to get access to your bank accounts because you only access that through your Chromebook. And it, it would be extremely difficult for, for a hacker or an identity thief or anyone to access your, your banking information if you're only doing it from your Chromebook or your iPad. Okay. Now you keep mentioning the Chromebook. Is that any better than the iPad in terms of security? Not security wise. In fact, I think okay. uh, uh, the iPad is actually better. Okay. Uh, I like their security model much better than Chrome. The only thing with Chrome is you could actually buy a kind of laptop. So it's, uh, you know, so you have a you know, real keyboard. Uh, it's, it closely resembles a laptop more than an iPad. Okay. And recently, 
everyone started taping up the camera on their computers after it turned out that the FBI director does it and suggested that everyone do it. Um, well, think think about that uh, student that was eating Mike yeah. and Ike's candy. At you know, if he had a, a piece of tape over his webcam. Yeah, uh, he would have never been called into the principal's office. Yeah. So my question is, we can tape up the camera, but what do we do about the microphone on our computer? Well, you know, you could have you could end up getting malware where um, where the malware actually, if it's a laptop, enables the microphone and streams your audio. So essentially your laptop becomes a room bug. Mm -hmm. Right. So you just go get a headphone jack, an old one. Right. And you just cut the, uh, the plug off. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in other words, you cut down, you cut the uh, the the jack, right okay. from like an old headphone that yeah. you don't use anymore, and you just plug it in to the uh, audio jack, and yeah. that way, uh, even if your microphone's enabled, they're not going to hear any audio. But you have to be careful that you don't short the wires. Yeah, <laughs> so it's that simple. Okay, I want to talk about social media because, in some ways, I feel like social media is the enemy of privacy and invisibility and everything you're talking about in this book. What do you recommend if people want to have social media and have a social media life, but still be safe from predators and spies and whatnot? You know, in my opinion, whatever you post on a social media website, regardless if if it's limited to just only your friends and or if you have like a locked Twitter account, it doesn't matter. Just assume everything you post on social media will be is public. Mm -hmm. And if you make that assumption, you'll always be fine. Yeah. Right. So there, nothing will come back to haunt you. Um, and that's how I treat social media is anything I put in Twitter direct message or Twitter or in Facebook, I just assume anybody could read. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about something that I'm guilty of. A lot of times when I download a new app or I register for something, it gives me the choice of having to fill out the whole sign up form or just press a button and sign up through my Facebook account. I'm assuming that you would probably oh, right. think that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you get that a lot where you could uh, use your social networking accounts to sign up or to sign in as authentication mm-hmm. to other services. Um, uh, it's a very convenient, but uh, personally, I don't like using it because then I'm telling, I'm letting Facebook know I have a relationship with this other website and Facebook is in the business of collecting information about you so they could sell it or somehow market products and services to you. So if you are concerned about your privacy, I wouldn't use what they, they call it OAuth, right? Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. it's a type of authentication that makes it simple for the user uh, to do. Um, yeah, if, if, if it's sites you don't care about, like, like let's say you have an account at the New York Times to read the news and you use your Facebook account to log into it, it's like, okay, that's cool. Who really cares? But for example, if it's a financial account with Schwab, and I don't think even Schwab would even give you the option of doing it anyway, but that I would be more concerned about. Because if somebody were to get your Facebook credentials, they could log in to these other sites and they're in, right? And those sites might might even bypass two-factor authentication. Because that's what another recommendation I have in the book is everyone not only should use a password manager, but any site which gives them the opportunity to enable two-factor authentication. Google calls it two-step authentication. They should absolutely do it. And what two-factor authentication is, think of your ATM card. Whenever you go to an ATM, uh, you have your card, which is used to authenticate you, and then you must know a PIN. So it's something you have, your card, and something you know, your PIN code. Well, uh, 
for example, to set up two-factor authentication at Gmail or Google, you could set up your mobile phone as the something you have device. So you could either have Google text you a code or you could have an application on your phone uh, that shows you the code or there's even push applications now with uh, Gmail. So basically, when you log into your Gmail account, not only do you have to have your username and password, but you have to have your mobile phone close by because that's how you're going to get the code that you need to plug into the website to actually complete the login process. And, and how much data is Facebook collecting on us? Are they collecting data on us even when we're not using the app? Yes, they are. I mean, pretty much uh, Facebook is in the business of collecting your information and they do it through partner sites. So when partner sites could track you, right, and, and they're um, a kind of an aggregator site and they're sharing the information with Facebook, well, that information gets put into Facebook's database. And you use the example of John McAfee and ISIL jihadists to illustrate a point about how much information is contained in digital photos. Um, there's a lot more than just a picture there, huh? Right, exactly. So John McAfee, who was the founder of uh, McAfee Antivirus, was living in Belize. There was a dispute with his neighbor, and one day his neighbor was found shot dead, face down in the dirt. So the police, because they knew of this dispute, immediately John McAfee became a person of interest. Then when he found out he was a person of interest, he fled and became a fugitive. He was hiding out from the police. What was pretty comical about McAfee was he actually had a blog, and as he was a fugitive, he was writing a blog entry every day describing how he's spying on the police and where he was hiding. It was it was actually quite funny. Um, and then, you know, uh, he is doing media interviews because he's a well-known guy, and uh, he was being interviewed by some magazine. I forgot the name of the magazine, and one of the reporters snapshotted a photo of him and they uploaded it to Twitter at the time and basically it was kind of a taunt you know oh I'm here with you know, with so-and-so being interviewed and nobody knows where I am <laughs> and then another security guy named a guy named Mark Loveless lives in Texas um or you know, you know saw the photo he downloaded the photo and looked at the exif data that's actually embedded in a digital photograph and my God, it contained his longitude and latitude of where the photo was taken. <laughs> so he was with Google Maps because you could just plug in the long and lat, was able to find the exact location where they took the photograph and realized that McAfee was in Guatemala. Then he tweeted it and they actually nabbed him. They, they found him and eventually uh, they let him go. And he's now in the United States and recently was even running for president. Right. Uh, he's a he's a character. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> you know, another one that monitors people's movements is Uber. Uber's been collecting data on everyone's location, even apparently when the app is in the background, when you're not exactly. using the app, right? Right. So in you know, the Art of Invisibility book, I actually mentioned that uh, some employees at Uber have what they call God mode. So they could essentially, anybody, any customer that uses the Uber app, they could see your uh uh, your location, your your physical GPS location, which is quite scary. So unfortunately, there's nothing you could do. You could just turn off location services and just disable it on all your apps, or you could just not use apps that run in the background and basically provide your location. I'm sure when you install Uber, they have an end user license agreement that people have to accept that probably tells you that you're you know that you're providing your location to Uber 
you know, 24 seven, but mm. nobody reads it. Yeah. People just cl click, I accept. And that's it. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Kevin Mitnick when we come back in just a moment. So it's a new year now, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business, and GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them the tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to get up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name, and GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. And right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off new purchases. That's GoDaddy.com and offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And now, back to the podcast. In a lot of ways, big data is great. It's beneficial. It gives us access to better services. Um, is it something that we'll just have to accept that we have to either inconvenience ourselves to have more privacy or we'll have to be able to give up some of this privacy in order to get better service? Well, yeah, think about this. If you're not paying for a service, if you're not paying a monthly fee or an annual fee for a service, guess who's the product? Uh. You. You're the product. So yeah. it's a quid pro quo. So basically, instead of paying, you're agreeing to give up your personal information, your personal privacy in order to use the service. Now, I've talked to some people who would swear that their phone is listening to them, their cell phone. And they'll be supposedly having a conversation in person at lunch or something with a friend talking about, let's say, Ugg boots. And suddenly they go on to Facebook later on and get bombarded with ads for Ugg boots. They would swear that someone's listening to them. Can your smartphone listen in on your in-person conversation when you're not using it? It sure can if it has um, malware. Like that's a, like for example, NSO, the company out of Israel, that was trying to compromise, well, uh, I'm sure the government of Dubai was trying to compromise this uh, dissonance uh, cell phone, they could have absolutely turned on the microphone and listened to the audio. In fact, when you turn off your cell phone, uh, the malware, it won't really turn off your cell phone. It will actually uh, pretend. It will make your screen black like nothing's there and nothing works, but your cell phone is really on. Wow. And and any audio or any uh, movements that they could see through the camera is simply passed to the observer, to the spy, so to speak. As far as marketing companies doing this, uh, uh, not likely. They're, they don't have they don't have their software on your phone 
Okay. To be able to do that because that would actually have to be a malicious software. Yeah, I see. But you do also say that there are televisions that can listen to your conversation, huh? Oh, absolutely. So like, uh, I forgot the model, uh, it's a Samsung TV, but I forgot the actual model number, but there are several TVs now that are basically voice activated. So you basically walk into the room, TV on, TV off, <laughs> you know, turn to channel, blah, right? And this sort of thing. So what does that tell you? That there's something in the room that actually is listening to you to take your commands. And these researchers studied this model of Samsung television and realized that your voice commands were being sent over your internet connection to Samsung servers. So it's unknown what they're doing with the data. Could, you know, could they be storing that or selling that? Who knows? But what's the scary thing is that your voice commands were being sent up to Samsung. What is really scary is that you talk about how many of the devices and how many of the appliances in our homes are connected appliances and increasingly so. Um, with these types of things, is the danger more that hackers can sabotage the device itself or use it against you directly? Or that because that device may be connected to everything else, your calendar, your Amazon account, your email, that the device might provide an easily hackable backdoor into more important things? Well, actually both. I mean, there was this uh, funny case of uh, this uh, guy, his wife left him for another guy, and but, they, uh, but she got the house. And so the guy was still really pissed off about the whole situation. And he had access to the, their Nest account, you know, which lets you set the thermostat. And so when, when he knew that she was out of the house, like at work and he was at work or, uh, or she tweeted that she's going on vacation, immediately he would turn up the thermostat at full blast as high as he could. And then before they arrived home, you know, he would, you know, cool off the house and that way they get huge electric bills. <laughs> All right. So how do you like that for vengeance? Yeah. Um, in another case, um, you had the baby monitor. So Baby monitors are used, obviously, with infants, and uh, there's been numerous cases where you could, you know, get, you know, listen to audio of, you know, a stranger by compromising the baby monitor, because a lot of these IoT devices, we call them Internet of Things devices, don't really have security. So people put up these cameras, they put up these baby monitors, uh, they make it so they could access it remotely through their router. And they use like default credentials, like admin, admin, for example, <laughs> or admin password, really stupid stuff. And now, it, now it's really easy for an outsider to gain access and turn on, the, you know, listen to the baby monitor and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing we also talk about in the art of invisibility is a vulnerability in a particular refrigerator that allowed you to display the Google calendar. So it's kind of cool. You know, people have a, like a, plastic calendar with a marker on the refrigerator. Yeah. Well, this one actually displayed electronic your Google calendar. So it was kind of cool, but the refrigerator manufacturer did not use um, uh, encryption in sending those credentials over to Google. So it was trivial for a hacker to get the username and password to the Gmail account that had that Google calendar. And you say you have to be very careful when you're at work as well. Um, you suggest bringing a separate device to work if you're going to do anything personal and don't use the company Wi-Fi. That's right, because when you're working at a company, every company has the right to monitor 
any type of activity on their equipment, whether it's their Wi-Fi, whether it's the workstations or desktops at uh, employee desks, they have the absolute right. You have no reasonable expectation of privacy. So if you want to do like private, you know, private work, I'm not talking about looking at the you know CNN website to get you know the daily daily news. You know, I'm talking about like maybe doing personal emails and this sort of thing. It's it's really easy. Just bring a you know MacBook Air or a lightweight Mac, uh, uh, notebook computer or even a, a an iPad or uh, a Samsung tablet or whatever whatever you like, and then you know per, have a, a portable internet device. You know I have a Verizon MyWi, right? Uh, you can go to an, you know AT and T, T Mobile, Sprint, a Verizon, and they sell these devices. They're portable, and uh, what you do is you when you set up the device, you set up uh, what they call a WPA2 key. Mm-hmm. So when you connect to your wireless internet device, you have to have a password. Um, and the password should, you know, it's over eight characters and it should be obviously not something easy to guess. And then you just connect your, your laptop or your iPad or whatever to your own wireless device and then use the internet. And that way your workplace has no right to monitor what you're doing. Absolutely not. And, and that's the way, uh, people should communicate if they have any you know, if they have any uh, concerns about their privacy in the workplace. What can they do if you use their Wi-Fi? Because you also suggest never using public Wi-Fi. Right. Well, what they could do, if, if you know, don't forget the company has the Wi-Fi credentials. I mean, mm-hmm. there's different configurations of Wi-Fi. But suffice it to say, if you're using your company Wi-Fi, they could eavesdrop in any Internet communications that are, are not using SSL. Wow. What is SSL? That's you like going to, you know, your bank. And it has it's a secure website because it has the, the padlock, right? Mm-hmm. Because what it what that does is during the transport of your communications with that website, it's all encrypted, right? So your your workplace wouldn't be able to uh, see the communications there, but they know you're going to that site. They could tell what site you're going to, but not what the data is. But anything else that's not encrypted, they could actually eavesdrop on everything, whether that's using wow. a messaging service and that sort of thing. So that's why I recommend to protect your privacy and also to comply with the terms of use agreement in in your employee employer contract. Mm-hmm. It's always best to bring your own equipment. It's pretty cheap these days and pretty light. I was interested to see that 60% of employers monitor their employees' internet use, 45% monitor employees' keystrokes, 43% monitor the contents of employee emails. So in theory, I guess an employer or an IT department could be getting my email passcodes, my credit card information, logins to Amazon? Well, it all depends. Again, yeah. if you're using SSL okay. to uh, communicate with these sites, then maybe not. But you never know if the company is logging your keystrokes on your computer, then they could get your passwords because you're typing them on your keyboard. Mm, yeah. Right? So the safest thing, it's just easier not to use their equipment. And whenever you're using an open wireless uh, network, uh, it's trivial for a hacker to also intercept your communications. So what I always recommend, and I recommended this in the book, is you always should use a VPN. What is VPN? That stands for Virtual Private Network. Mm-hmm. You can Google these services. You can put into Google VPN services. They're about 60 bucks a year, five bucks a, uh, five bucks a month. When you connect to an open wireless network, whether it's at the local coffee shop, the restaurant, the shopping mall, the airport, the airplane, right? The first thing you do is start up your VPN service. 
And that way, all your communications um, between your device uh, are, is, going be, uh, is encrypted between you and your VPN provider. So if somebody is there eavesdropping on the wireless network, they're not going to be able to see your communications. A lot of people use the cloud, too. Um, I was interested to read that apparently uh, information stored in the cloud does not have the same Fourth Amendment protections as a document stored in your desk. Huh? Well, I mean, under federal law, there's um, there's doing intercepts in real time. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I want to eavesdrop on your conversation, for example, as an FBI agent, I have to get a Title III warrant, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about stored communications, like emails, right, or information that is in a store and forward, so it's stored temporarily and then forwarded on to the recipient, uh, law enforcement only has to get, like, for example, a subpoena. They don't even have to get a, a court order. And you're not only talking about law enforcement, what happens if you're getting a divorce and your husband or your wife is trying to take everything that you have, they have civil attorneys and investigators, you know, trying to collect information on you, you know, you don't want to be able to give them anything that's subpoenable, right? Mm-hmm. So that is why you want to encrypt your communications, whether you're sending a text message, whether you're sending an email, having a phone conversation, as long as, you know, you only protect your privacy when you need it. It's not like you have to use encryption all the time, but you should have the tools available to you to use it when you need it. And I was interested to read that another place where we're very vulnerable is when we're re-entering the country, apparently, and you have actually a personal experience with this. Um, what happened there? Well, it's a crazy story. What ended up happening is I, I had a girlfriend in Colombia at the time, and I always had the security uh, process. Whenever uh, I go back into the country, I would send a, a copy of my hard drive encrypted um, you know, using obviously the best encryption that's available commercially via FedEx to my house. And then I'd fly over back into the United States. And uh, when I landed, uh, the guy at the passport control scans my passport. And I could tell that something was wrong when you could see him reading something. You could see the eyes going back and forth. And I just go to, in my mind's eye, I go, oh, no, this is not good. <laughs> and then he immediately looks up at me and smiles and says, hey, Kev. Some people want to talk to you downstairs, but don't worry, everything will be fine. So, of course, go get my bags. What was interesting, the process was flawed. So when I was able to get the bags, I was able to power off all my computers, you know, <laughs> which means, you know, which means no crypto keys are stored anymore. And then eventually I went to the desk and, you know, this was like a, a third degree out of CSI. They started um, looking at every device I had with me. And I got done doing a speaking engagement in Bogota. And uh, I had a device which uh, read proximity cards. And the guy thought it was a credit card reader. So he gets on the radio and goes, we found this guy has a credit card reader. You know, all excited. And I was just like in, my, in the back of my mind going, this guy's an idiot, right? <laughs> so eventually one thing led to another and I was detained. And uh, they wanted to go through all my stuff and to be to unlock all my computers. Uh, the computers that uh, contain my client's information, I basically refused to unlock. And uh, they couldn't force me to give up the, uh, the password. Fortunately, um, I was in Atlanta to speak for the, at the ASIS conference. So the ICE team called the local FBI asking them about me. And the FBI vouched that, hey, I, I'm on their side now, meaning, you know, I'm doing good things for the community. So basically, after, you know, several hours of going through this ordeal, they finally let me go. But other people are so fortunate. People... Yeah. Uh, you know, across the border are 
you know, when a policeman asks for your passcode to your phone, people are compelled to give it up. I would not give it up. Now, if I'm a U.S. citizen traveling back into the country, they cannot say we're not letting you into the country. I live here. I'm right. a U.S. citizen. They can force you, however, a court can force you to use your fingerprints to like unlock your phone if yeah. you have Touch ID enabled. But what they cannot force you to do as of now is force you to reveal your password, right? So one thing I recommend to my readers is whenever you're crossing a border, if you have an iPhone, reboot the iPhone uh, and then go through customs because when you reboot the iPhone and you don't put in the passcode, then the touch ID doesn't work. So okay. if your phone is taken away from you, even if they have a court order for you to use your fingerprints to try to open it, it won't work. And even without a court order, I was amazed to read that anyone's electronic device can be searched without a warrant or probable cause within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Is that right? Oh, that's right. That's absolutely right. So, you know, it's, this is really scary. And not, people, not a lot of people know this is basically customs and integrations, uh, ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement at the border and within 100 miles of the border could search your person, but also search through your computer and your phones, you have no Fourth Amendment rights because if you're within 100 miles of the border, you're considered that you're at the border. <laughs> Congress needs to fix this because yeah. my computer contains a lot of personal information. My computer contains a lot of my clients' private data. Why should I be forced to be able to provide this information to customs agents without any reasonable suspicion I'm doing anything wrong? What they want to do, the government wants to go on fishing, uh, fishing expeditions and hopefully find something that they could possibly use against somebody. I think, uh, you know, in my mind, it's unconstitutional, but I'm not an attorney. I'm not a judge. But, but what I am is a security expert, and I could advise people how to make it really difficult for the government to get access to your information unless you're compelled to do so by a court. Well, I want to quickly ask you about the Hillary hack. If you were to guess, who would you say was behind those, Russia or someone else? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But I could tell you that it wouldn't take sophisticated Russian hackers to do what happened in that case. It would take a 12-year-old. What happened is John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, received a phishing email purportedly from Google because John Podesta had a Gmail account. And in the content of the message, it basically said, the account has been uh, accessed from an unknown IP address and that they suggest he go in and change his password. And it provided a hyperlink to do so. And so John Podesta sent it over to his IT guy, figuring he didn't know what this is. You know, is this, is this something I should do? The IT guy said, yep, go ahead and do it. You better, you know, change your password. And then when they clicked on the link, when, when John Podesta clicked on the link and went through the process, he didn't realize that wasn't sent by Google. That was sent by you know, potentially the Russians or whomever did it. <laughs> and so John Podesta provided his password, right? <laughs> so so obviously, very, in a very quick amount of time, all John Podesta's emails were stolen. They were handed over to Julian Assange at WikiLeaks, and we know the rest of the story. So why did this work? Because John Podesta didn't have two-factor authentication. Huh. If he had two-factor authentication on his account, it would have been much harder to get access to his email. Wow. So he could have done, it's too bad he didn't read my book, before that happened. <laughs> well, before we go, uh, Donald Trump, against the insistence of his staff and the Secret Service, has decided to keep his cell phone and he sits up at night tweeting. How vulnerable <laughs> do you think that cell phone could be? Well, I'll tell you, people always ask me, how secure is their mobile phone? 
So if you have an Apple, an iOS device, you're only secure against an adversary with less than $1.5 million. Why is that? <laughs> because for $1.5 million or more, you could buy a zero-day exploit, basically a tool that allows you to compromise the device and get access to it. With an Android device, it's not $1.5 million, it's only $200,000. So for $200,000, you could potentially compromise Donald Trump's Android phone. So I'm hoping that, and I doubt that the, you know, that the National Security Agency, or whoever has control of this, of classified information in this case, would allow him to use his personal Android device to communicate any classified information. Yeah, because I think that the, what they said is that a lot of times his friends will call him on his phone and then he calls them back from a landline. But who knows? Yeah. So I don't know <laughs> if that's secure yeah. or not. Well, again, the book is called The Art of Invisibility. The world's most famous hacker teaches you how to be safe in the age of big brother and big data. Kevin Mitnick, thanks so much for talking to me. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Kevin Mitnick for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his book, The Art of Invisibility, The World's Most Famous Hacker Teaches You How to Be Safe in the Age of Big Brother and Big Data on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. You can learn more about Kevin's security testing company at mitnicksecurity.com and his security training group is at nobefore.com. That's the word no, the word b, and then the number four.com. And follow him on Twitter at, at Kevin Mitnick. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.